Look close at your calendar. It says 2021, but in this room today, it's 2022. The first of the statewide political candidates has stopped by to talk on the Chuck Williams Show. We're going to get, introduce you to David Bell Isle very soon. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome back. Uh, we had a week off last week. We're back this week, and we're hoping that this show becomes a place that politicians not only want to come to, but they feel like they need to come to when they hit Muskogee County. We want to talk politics with the people that are in the thick of it on a state level, and we're going to start with a pretty good one today. We're starting with David Belisle. David is a former mayor of Alpharetta. He is running for Secretary of State as a Republican. He's running against current Secretary of State and guy who's been the thick of everything for the last two years, David Rath. I mean, Brad Rathensberger, sorry. I, I know that. I know that. Okay, against Brad Rathensberger. So that's where we are right now. We're going to start the conversation with David Belisle. David, welcome. Thank you so much. Chuck, thanks for having me, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. So you're in Columbus today, but you're, you're an Atlanta guy. I mean, uh, a metro Atlanta guy in a lot of ways. When I want to get your background, and then I want to ask you a little bit about what somebody from Atlanta who doesn't probably know Columbus that well, what you think of Columbus. But let's start with your background. Um, small, I mean, not small town, but Alpharetta mayor, Alpharetta city council person. So you've come through the municipal, municipal side of government. Yeah, and, and first of all, I'd have to stop you. So, I, And I know that outside Metro Atlanta, everything's grouped together. But but uh, sometimes we in Alpharetta take a little offense when you call us Atlanta. But uh. <laughs> I, understand. I understand. Just so it, like people yeah, in Harris County take offense when you call them Columbus. Yeah, so it, it's it's a little different. But uh, so, but I, I grew up, uh, you know, in Gainesville, Georgia. Um, that's where I grew up. And then um, my adult life has been uh, in Alpharetta and uh, – we, you're right. We came up the municipal side, and, and it was really a very simple um, uh, transition because what we saw when we came to Alpharetta was a great area in terms of low crime. There was great schools, um, and it was convenient to a lot of places. Um, but there really was no there there. Um, if you were, I told when I first ran for council, I would tell people, you know, if you were designing a, you know, a postcard for Alpharetta, what would you put on it? And Many people in Georgia can't tell you what county Alpharetta is in. <laughs> well, I can tell you which county it is, and we wish it was a different one. Uh, so we're in Fulton County. You're North Fulton. You're <laughs> North Fulton. That's right. But some people think you may be Cobb or Gwinnett. I mean, they, because everything kind of blends once you get up that way a little bit. I can see that. Uh, and, and if we're given the opportunity, we would rather be Cobb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that opportunity is there. I don't think you can redraw those lines yet. Um uh, but you, what did you do when you ran, when did you first run for city council in Alpharetta and and what were you doing for a living up there? Uh, I was doing the same thing uh, that I do now. So I'm an attorney by trade. And I have a law firm uh, in downtown Alpharetta. Uh, we have a firm of about uh, eight to nine folks, part time folks in there. But um, uh, it's it's a good firm. That's what that's what I did then, and that's what I do now. What's the focus of your practice? Uh, so my specific practice is real estate oriented. So I do mostly uh, uh, commercial real estate transactions, uh, shopping centers, office buildings, those type of things. How's business right now? Business is good. Uh, it's been it's been pretty strong. Um, you know, the uh, it, it's kind of weird with the COVID situation. We didn't know how that was going to go, 
Um, so we, uh, but it, it seems that uh, you know we're, we're we are in the uh, the fortunate dilemma of trying to figure out okay how do we do a statewide campaign and make sure that uh, we're still serving our clients. And I know down here residential real estate is hot as as fire, but I mean is commercial the same? Commercials the same way then, right? It, uh, to a degree, you know, uh, commercial is more spotty. Uh, it depends on the you know there's kind of micro market so to speak. Alpharetta's commercial market is doing really well. A lot of things, uh, you know, the, the, the latest trend in terms of commercial real estate is, is really having an office near what I call just stuff. You know, they, they want to, people want to be able to go to work, but then when they, when they leave for lunch or some other purpose to be in and around uh, an exciting environment, and that, whether that's our downtown or whether it's Avalon, uh, we've got a lot of those, those options. You just described downtown Columbus. <laughs> there you go. Um, so you went to UGA undergrad, and where'd you get your law degree? Uh, Georgia State. So uh, downtown Atlanta. So. What do you know about Columbus? What's your impression of Columbus and Muskogee County as somebody who's not from around here, but you're in a municipal, you've been in a municipal situation? Well, my mom was born here, so I'm not exactly uh, foreign to Columbus. What's um, your mom's name? Uh, Janet Belisle. Uh, okay. It would have been Janet Unberzot at the time. Okay. Um, now she did, you know, she was here. I don't know exactly when she left. But Columbus has always been one of those cities where we, we're a little more familiar with than okay. most. So, <laughs> in what way? What, what, what way? What way are you kind of familiar with Columbus? Um, really, just more in terms of perception, in terms of, of travel too. So, you know, we we try to we we make a, a big effort to make sure that we're here in Columbus on not just today, but uh, throughout the campaign and and just in general. Before you know, campaigns aside, one of my wife and I's uh, favorite things is is to to see different communities and towns. As you know, when you when you're been a mayor, you're always looking at the, to see how things are done, what makes things exciting, what makes it interesting. Uh, Y'all have done a, a great job in the last 10 years, seeing a lot of changes, uh, what's f- happened with uh, bringing that, uh, I guess this, it's a man-made uh, river that's a part of it now. And what, Actually, that, that's interesting, and, and I know it's been marketed heavily in Atlanta. Yeah. It's a real river. It's This is not like the Whitewater Course in Charlotte or somewhere. This is in the Chattahoochee, and it's engineered in the river, there are a couple of man-made rapids. There were some rapids there. The Whitewater Course, we're talking about 2.6-mile urban Whitewater Course yeah. that has just had more people come in this summer than any other time in eight years. And the rapids are engineered in the river. So, you know, it, it it's a combination of God and man in, yeah. in a lot of ways. We, when I was mayor, we took our entire council here to Columbus uh, for a city retreat. And the purpose was to look and see what y'all had done on y'all's river walk because when we were forming what we consider our version of the belt line, we call it the alpha loop, we wanted to see kind of urban trail systems and how those work and what, what kind of features that we wanted to make sure that we included. Um, and so we took the entire council here and, and explored y'all's river walk, and I think we took back some of, some of the good aspects of that. I mean, in the last year, a Hotel Indigo has opened on our river walk um, We've had Synovus and corporate buildings down there, but we now are starting to move into hotels, restaurants, and other things. So our river walk is developing. Y'all had the college move into downtown as well, which created a lot level of activity. And Columbus State University is a central part of our downtown redevelopment. No yeah. question about it. We were jealous on that aspect. It was like, how do we get how do we get a college involved in our in our downtown? One of the <laughs> one of the one of the th- what thirty four public universities in the state of Georgia. And, but there's been significant, I mean, 
hundreds of million of millions of dollars in private investment here um, to make that happen. It didn't. It wasn't a state ticket as much as it was a local ticket that with the state partner. Um, so, what's the toughest part about being a mayor? Yeah, the the, uh, the toughest part about being a mayor is recognizing, uh, which really comes it'll come into play as we talk further on the Secretary of State's office, but. It's recognizing that the title is not enough and opinions are not enough. And, uh, you know, one of the funny things, you know, the, I will tell, I'll, I'll lead with this. The best part about being a mayor is going into an elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> and third graders, I mean, they, they see the president of the United States and then right underneath, just barely, uh, is the mayor <laughs> of their town. Um, and uh, I've never felt more like a rock star than going into my own kids' elementary school um, I remember the, the first time I went in there, kids were asking me for my autograph, and I said no because I thought, I'm not famous, you know. And my wife gave me a, a good stern talking to. I was like, no, to you they are, and you got to. So anyway, so I started doing the autograph thing. But you would go through the lunch, and they would all have their hands out, and you're giving high fives all the way down the list. Um, one of my favorite stories is we were there to have lunch with my daughter, and uh, um, the, suddenly we're, uh, we're standing and leaning over my daughter, and suddenly uh, someone shouts that the child from two tables over says, Hey, lady. And, and Candace looks up, what? what? Hey, lady, can you move? I can't see the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the reality is, uh, as fun as it is to be a mayor in an elementary school, the reality is, is you have one vote. And, you know, each council is a little different, but in, in, in Alpharetta's case, there are seven possible votes, and you get one of those votes. You're a glorified council member. But what you have is a platform for leadership uh, and a platform to cast a vision to bring your community, your town, where it needs to be. And so that's, that's the best part about being mayor is figuring out that out, that, A, it's more than opinion. This is about leadership, and it's about a platform. Uh, to get things done. Well, you're better situated than Columbus Mayor Skip Henderson. He doesn't get a vote unless it's five, <laughs> unless it's five five. Gotcha. He, he gets the he's the eleventh. If there's a five five tie, he can break it. So at least you get to vote. There you go. You get to vote on the rezonings. Um, one thing before we start getting into the meat of this, but you have a very unique name, Bell Isle. It's mm -hmm. two words, David Bell Isle. It's a I mean, give me a little bit of the origin of the name, if you wouldn't mind, David. Yeah, well, we, we believe it's French. It means a uh, beautiful island. And, uh, um, you know, the, the, we don't think it – we think somehow somebody in our family decided to add the S, though, and uh, get rid of the hyphen and make it two words. So we think we've – someone in our family, we think we've monkeyed with the spelling a little bit. Uh, every Belle Isle I have ever met is related to me, so it doesn't seem to be very common. I'm sure there are Belle Isles out there that I'm not related to. I haven't found one yet. <laughs> I mean, in where are the Bell Isles? Are they in Georgia? Are they in Michigan? Where so, are? So uh, there may be some. There is an island called Belle Isle in Michigan. Um, it is. I've been to it. Yeah, but my, my, you know, I know my family is six generations Atlanta. So I was born in Atlanta. They were uh, my grandmother and my grandfather uh, grew up on Capitol Avenue, right where Turner Field. Old Brave Stadium. <laughs> I know, I know Capitol <laughs> Avenue well because it goes right into Grant Park. Yeah, so uh, they both grew up on that same street, uh, and uh, George Ave goes into Grant Park. Yeah, and so and then my great great grandmother had a boarding house on uh, on Ponce de Leon, literally with cows uh, in in the front yard. So 
it's an old Atlanta family. Um, my my history, as I mentioned, is in Gainesville because my dad um, he moved up when I was about four or five up to Gainesville, Georgia, and so I grew up in, in Gainesville, Georgia. Um, and then came back to Alpharetta after you got out of law school, right? That's back, right. Back into essentially Metro Atlanta. That's right. Um, let's talk politics now. All You're right. in the okay. This ought to be fun. This is going to be an interesting one. Uh, Describe your political philosophy for me. You know, uh, it is uh, as little government as possible. <laughs> uh, I am a, a pro-life Christian conservative. Um, you know, the, the thing that, that drew me in, though, to politics was not about uh, any particular list of policy positions that I thought should and, and could be. It was really, um, we, you know, what we touched on already is, is what brought me in is I saw a city that could be something different and better. Um, and so I ran uh, for city council originally and uh, got in there but was unable to get the stuff done that I wanted to, and so I ran for mayor. A lot of that we were able to get done. Was that a contested race? All those races, yes, they were contested. So you've run contested every time you've been on the ballot. Yeah, I never get a pass. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever gives me a pass. So uh, the uh, – the, uh, was that? somebody recently um, – uh, oh, uh, the the mayor in the next city up, uh, Milton, uh, great guy. He just ran for mayor, and he's the mayor elect without opposition. I was like, how does that even happen? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> that's not my story. <laughs> uh, so, so you you're a, a pro life Christian conservative. You're sitting here looking at the potential statewide offices that are out there. Uh, why office offices but no no you were looking but i mean why did you narrow in on secretary of state i mean why not lieutenant governor why not attorney gen- uh, general yeah. i mean there are other offices you could have gone after yep and you're not the first to suggest that um, in fact the first time um that i wanted to run for secretary of state i went and i sat down with my consultant um and or at least at that time they weren't my consultant yet and i said hey i want to run for secretary of state and they asked the exact same question you did well why don't you run for lieutenant governor because i don't want to run for secretary uh, to, for lieutenant governor and the reason is this is that the whole reason that i decided to leave and i did i left the mayor's office a little early so i could run for secretary of state is because what i experienced as mayor was really an alignment of skills and 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 um and desire for the city in other words where what i'm good at lined up with the opportunities and though i and, and because of that i felt that there was a lot of purpose in what we were able to do in the city and we we did some amazing things we uh we we created a downtown out of whole cloth <laughs> we uh we resurrected an 85 acre failed project into what is now avalon we grew our core industry from under 400 companies to over 700 companies. We created a leadership commission of our, our top technology companies uh, to be able to help give us guidance and help build the city where it needed to go. We created a technology incubator. We cr- uh, pursued and landed a technical college. We uh, had a conference center that we figured out how to fund and make us part uh, of Avalon. We created our version of the Beltline. All these things were amazing because it would literally start as a journal entry and then I would cast a vision at, uh, both inside our organization and to the community and the businesses outside the organization. And we would get the right people in the room and we would figure out how to get these things done that nobody, including myself, knew how to do. And that was amazing. And so the reason that I ran for Secretary of State was twofold. And it was a very, it was a very simple platform uh, when I ran in the 2018 race. One was to champion Georgia jobs 
The other one was to defeat voter fraud. And I, I believe that, you know, we have a, a, a legitimate state government and a legitimate U.S. government because it governs with the consent of the governed. And I think that is important. And there's too many opportunities, and we'll get, I'm sure, deeper into that in a minute with respect to absentee ballots and other things. But the thing that drew my heart was that when we go around the state of Georgia, there's an opportunity. If I could just make a dream title, it would be Georgia's mayor. <laughs> because I would love to go to the community. But isn't that the governor? The governor's Georgia's mayor, essentially. Well, you could, you could argue that. But here, let me explain on that. Because what I see when I see the communities and the towns across the state of Georgia, there's a lot of ones that, that, that haven't quite figured out. They know what they want to be, quote-unquote, when they grow up, but they haven't quite figured out how to get it done. And so what I would love to be is just a partner with them. It's like, okay, well, well wh- where are you going? And let's get the right people around the table and talk about it and just figure out the path. And while we didn't accomplish everything I set out to do in Alpharetta, we accomplished a lot of it. And so when you have an organization, which is the Secretary of State's office, that touches and concerns every single business in the state of Georgia, to me it is, again, a platform and an opportunity to really help out the state. By contrast, you mentioned uh, Lieutenant Governor. Nothing wrong with that position. It's a needed position. That's a legislative position. And what I wanted to be able to do was to essentially roll up my sleeves and help be, uh, in, in many senses, a surrogate mayor across the state of Georgia. One of the things that people have lost track of, I think, and this may or may not be a fair criticism, but through the last four, six years, they've looked at the Secretary of State as elections only. That office is far broader with the corporations, licensing, everything that office touches outside of elections. It's corporations, it's it's, uh, securities, it's licensing, it's charities. And it's a lot of things that, uh, quite frankly, have been thrown in there over the years because the legislature didn't know where else to put it. Yep. Um, you know, it's I, a catch-all position. It is a catch-all position. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, th- this is where um, where I see the crux of it coming down to. And it's interesting, too, because you know, one of the things and titles of the Secretary of State is that the Secretary of State is the keeper of the great seal of the state of Georgia. Now, that's a literal job because there is a seal from the 1700s in the Secretary of State's office, complete with the press, and you can go see it if you want to see it. Um, but there's also, in my opinion, also this figurative role as well with respect to that. And so I see, you know, the seal, not a lot of people know this, but the seal is actually two sides. We always see the wisdom, justice, moderation side with yep. essentially the Georgia arches yep. <laughs> there and a soldier there. And, and, and that's good. And to me, that's the, to me, uh, in terms of being the keeper of the seal, that represents the election side, keeping the election secure. But if you flip that seal over, what you see is uh, a port, a ship, and you see commerce. And that, to me, is also being the keeper of the seal. And it's an opportunity, much like what I was just saying, that where Secretary of State, even though it's not traditionally been an economic development role, it's an opportunity to partner with the cities and counties across the state of Georgia and, and help provide resources and leadership where we can. Rate the job Brad Raffensperger has done in his, in his three-plus, three years as Secretary of State. You, you want a numeric or you want a, a letter? Letter and explain it. I, I would say an F. And I know, wow. yeah, absolutely. Um, here's the thing there, there is um, certainly plenty of allegations and questions and concerns. And, 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 and I'll, I'll preface it by saying this the moment somebody says fraud, somebody envisions a tinfoil hat. 
And so what I want to do for a moment is, okay, let's put that aside for a minute, and let's look specifically at how the job was run. And so my beef with Brad Raffensperger, and this is why I'm running, because there, I, I, I truly feel I have to run to be able to fix this. But here's what happened. Um, and, and this is in the, in the context of simply bad decision-making and incompetence. On the first item uh, he, he did, he sent unsolicited absentee ballot applications to 6.9 million addresses. Now, that is, uh, if nothing He did else, that in the primary? He did that in the primary. As the pandemic was, was starting to take hold. That's right. And he did that at a cost of $13 million. And on those absentee ballot applications, all you needed to do if you received one of them is to simply check a box, and then you would receive ballots for the rest of the election cycle. Now, the thing is that really kind of upsets me is not only did he send them out unrequested, which means they're just going out to whatever address, whether it's still a valid address or not. But it's all registered voters in the state of it's Georgia. It's people on the list. Now, there are, now uh, there, there are some folks that had got it that were on the inactive voter list. I cannot prove that it was all of the inactive voter list, but we do know it was 6.9 million addresses. Now, that being said, he also sent it first-class mail. Now, the unique feature of first-class mail is that when it arrives at an address that, it, that that person no longer lives, it's forwarded to the next address. And by definition, that is an invalid voter, one who is no longer. And you're simply ask, you know, creating, again, more opportunities for fraud and certainly for uncertainty. So that was the first thing. Then you had uh, what has come to be known as the consent decree. It's a compromise settlement agreement. Democrat Party of Georgia sued the Secretary of State's office, not an uncommon thing. And Brad, without talking to anyone else in the state uh, in terms of governor or other, um, decided to sign that consent decree. And now the, the temptation is to say, well, a consent decree is bad. But I, I want to tell you why it's bad. Because what that consent decree did, and, and I just don't think he was able to see or foresee um, what the consequences would be. Because in a vacuum, it sounds fine. But it's really when you contemplate what it actually does and when it's practical implications. So when that consent decree was signed, there were two main provisions in it. One was is that uh, in order to invalidate a mail-in ballot, a county, all 159 county board of elections, would have to convene a three-member panel they would have to evaluate that ballot and then take a vote as to whether that ballot would be accepted or not accepted. It sounds in a vacuum fair. The other thing is that in the event that the ballot was considered invalid, then they would have to uh, note. You didn't say fraudulent. You said invalid. There's that's right. a difference, right? There is a difference. Yeah, okay. that's what I'm saying. I'm setting fraud aside for a okay. moment. Okay. I'm just talking incompetence uh, okay. and bad decision making. At okay, this point. that's fair, fair. Yeah. And so, so the, uh, the so if a if a if a ballot is deemed invalid by this three member panel, you have to notify the alleged voter by two forms. One is in writing, okay. uh, and the other is either phone or email. And what happened? The practical implications of this is what happened is that the counties didn't invalidate any mail in ballots, and I say any. It went from a rejection rate in 2000, average rejection rate in 2018 and 2016 of about 4.6% uh, to a rejection rate in 2020 of 0.4%. That means is... So less than a half a percent. That's right. That's okay. right. And what that means is um, there are, uh, you apply that to the 1.3 million absentee ballots <laughs> that, were, that were sent in, that's 55,000 votes that in any other election, if applied by the same criteria, would not have been counted. 
And here's the thing, too, is when you look at those 1.3 million ballots, the split on that for Biden-Trump, it was 65% Biden, 35% Trump. Um, when you subtract those, take those 55,000 ballots, subtract them out at those same percentages, the actual result of Georgia's presidential vote changes because the difference was only about 12,000 votes in the first place. This is a perfect time to ask a question I was going to ask anyway. Do you think Joe Biden won the presidential uh, election in the state of Georgia? I do not, uh, and for the reasons that I just specified. By statistics alone, you can see that the wrong result on the presidential side was certified. That's without having to put any tinfoil hats on or without having to show uh, reams or spreadsheets full of any type of fraudulent votes just on the decision process alone in sending out those unsolicited absentee ballot applications in signing that uh, consent decree, we can see that the wrong vote was certified. Not only that, uh, when you look at the Senate race, if you apply that same... Right. Which Senate race? The Purdue Senate race. Okay. So when you look at the Purdue-Ossoff um, uh, Senate race, what you find is that Purdue avoids the runoff if the same criteria for absentee ballots is applied as was used in 2018 in previous years. So you not only don't think Biden won, you don't think Ossoff should have been in the runoff. Uh, that is correct. And, and, and I want to specify, I'm only talking about Georgia because okay. I have not studied any other state. And so I believe that as a matter of poor decision-making and incompetence, Brad certified the wrong presidential result, and he certified the wrong Senate result as res with respect to Purdue and Ossoff because Purdue should not have had to go to the runoff. If he certified it, so did Governor Kemp. I mean, Governor Kemp also certified, I mean... The chief election officer is the Secretary of State, and I feel that falls solely at his feet. But there was another step in it, correct? I'm not aware of the that, governor okay. certifying well, elections. The governor, the, the governor never called a special session. Okay, that's different than okay. what you said. Okay, <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So you don't, so you don't think there should have been a runoff? You don't think there should have been a runoff? Well, in not that, not in not in that Senate race. Now, obviously, the the, the, the jungle closer. primary that we had, you know, Leffler and Doug Collins and fourteen other individuals. Obviously, that that uh, that did not meet the uh, criteria for avoiding a runoff. But the Purdue does. And here's the thing: is that it's not just a Georgia Senate seat. That literally was the balance and the control of power for the entire U.S. Senate for the entire country. It certainly turned out that way. When you look at this, do you think the pressure that President Trump brought to bear on Secretary Raffensperger was appropriate? I think that if Brad had done what he had supposed to, which, which is to A, uh, not be sending unsolicited absentee ballot applications, B, not signing consent decrees with consequences he did not understand. If he had followed that, there wouldn't have been that pressure from the president. You've heard the phone call, the, the I think, December phone call with the president. What's your take on that phone call? My take is Brad put him and the state of Georgia and the governor under pressure that they should not have been uh, by his inability to run fair and secure elections. Have there been any court cases that have found that this election was unfair, that there was corruption? In the, have there's, has there been anything to back up what you're saying that it was, that it was not – I mean, and I want to use your word. Say your word again. I want to, uh, you said fair? 
Fair and secure. Fair and secure. I want to use your words to make sure I got it right. Has there been anything you've seen legally that backs up that? Well, a lot of things, and, and that's a great question because it actually leads into the one of the things I want to see um, platform issues with respect to the Secretary of State's office. Many of the cases that were filed with respect to the 2020 election were dismissed. Now, the quick, easy, uh, aha moment is to say, well, they were dismissed, therefore they did not have merit. That's not the case. Um, most of those cases, and in fact, the only cases that I know of that were specific to the election results were dismissed, not because they didn't have merit. They were dismissed because they became moot. Now, moot means there's no longer a reason to figure out the answer. Yep. And when you have an election that is certified by the Secretary of State, and once that certification is accepted by the U.S. Senate, the judges in those cases decided there's no longer anything to discover or to figure out. And so one of the things, this leads to my platform issue, is I believe that we should have election courts in the state of Georgia. I'm not deciding that or saying that we need a whole other court system with you know, buildings and that sort of thing. I believe the governor or some other process uh, at, prior to an election cycle should appoint either five, maybe seven, you can depend on how you do it, uh, superior court judges across the state that would be able to, by Zoom call or some other technology that we're all experiencing now because of COVID, <laughs> Absolutely. be able to meet in bank, which means together as essentially like a city council, but essentially be able to hear arguments on both sides and render decisions in a timely manner. And that does two things. A, it allows justice to be done because you can hear and decide on a matter within the appropriate period of time. But the other thing it does is it creates that level of trust and certainty because you shouldn't have a matter as weighty uh, as Georgia's Electoral College, uh, as uh, Georgia's Senate assignments uh, elections being decided or not being decided by a court case because the judge can't get to it in time. Where do you stand, um, uh, David, on third-party money in, in, election, in, ele in the elections? You know, the foundation money that comes from folks like uh, the Zuckerberg Foundation, where do you stand on that money coming into elections? I think, uh, first of all, I, 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 we, we saw, I believe, where it was applied in ways that were not ideal, that were not good. Um, in fact, I would say, go far and farther and say that were applied uh, in a way that did harm. Uh, what we saw the Zuckerberg money come into was essentially those drop boxes. There was over 300 drop boxes that were used across the state, mostly in the metro Atlanta area. Um, but the process for, for distributing those drop boxes uh, was, I think, highly suspect. Oftentimes, those drop boxes were placed in areas uh, with high concentrations of voters of a particular uh, party. I do believe that, uh, you know, the, the elections is a state function. Uh, you know, when a private party decides to start funding and, and start uh, subsidizing those efforts, my guess is they, they have a specific result in mind. Uh, so I believe that the state uh, should fund its own elections, uh, you know, in combination with the local government, in this case the counties, uh, to, to make sure that it's done in a fair way. Uh, and there should be oversight uh, from the State Board of Elections, not only uh, on uh, you know, the Secretary of State and how he's doing his job, but also with respect to the counties. Uh, and how they administer their portion. You're a former mayor, right? Yes. You understand elections cost money Maybe. to the two municipalities, right? Yes, I do. I'm going to tell you real quickly how the money was spent here. The elections budget in, in Muscogee County was just under $1 million. Going into the year before the pandemic, the budget was 900000 and change. Um 
We have a direct director of elections here, Nancy Boring. She secured almost $900,000 in third-party money. It wasn't just from Zuckerberg. It was from Schwarzenegger's foundation, the U.S. at Southern Cal, um, for, former Republican governor of California. That money flowed into here. The first day of November, um, the first day of November voting of of November voting, we had five and a half hour lines for the one place you could vote in Muskogee County. Five and a half, six hour lines. Went to four and a half Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday and Wednesday. By Thursday, that money had been used to open multiple locations through the November election in advance voting, as well as advance voting in the the Senate runoffs. If you stood in line in Muskogee County to vote, Republican or Democrat, it was your own fault. So that's how the money came here. Without that money now, it's going to cost the city of Columbus to open those things. Where do you stand on that? What is a community like Columbus that actually got more polling places? They were opened in the north part of town, which is Republican, and in the south part of town, which is highly Democratic. What do you say in a situation like Columbus where that money did translate, and I, I mean, I saw it, into, into better voting process? Well, here's what I would say on that is that, first of all, I'm sorry that you had folks standing in line for as long uh, as they did, and I think there are ways to address that. Um, but the other thing is that when you have a party or, uh, excuse me, an entity providing money, suddenly you've got your elected official um, having to decide or, or their appointed official, I'm not sure in this particular case. So the council had to approve the right. acceptance of the money. So right. the elected officials had the final say. So, you know, now you suddenly have someone else to make happy and to please uh, that is not your constituent. And so the public policy issue there is like why suddenly we've got someone who have interest that may be from out of state or have some other interest that they want to have that money uh, and because they can use less of their own county money in this case. But uh, they, they don't want to, uh, in, in order to do that, it never comes without strings and requirements. And so that's why I would be very suspect and I would not be in support of private entities supporting it. If it's a money thing, then our, our leaders and our leadership need to find, you know, how to make, you know, either adjust the process or allocate more funds to that process. But I think entering in and adding a third party into that process that now you have to please in order to keep that money flowing I think it's bad public policy. And and that's fair. And I'm just telling you how it worked here. And I interviewed uh, Mr. Schwarzenegger. I think we're on first-name basis. I called him Arnold. Um, did you arm wrestling? No, 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 <laughs> I did not. But he had just been out shooting his tank So uh, when I got him. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it was interesting. He was clear. He was adamant that there were no strings attached. And I've talked to Nancy Boren numerous times, and I don't believe – based on what she's told me, there were strings attached. He was giving it for good and fair government. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I hope you're right. Uh, but I think when you enter in those type of, of concerns and those type of funds, you know, I think if you're going to do it you it, at all, you would do it at the top level uh, with respect to the Secretary of State's office and let it be figured out. Um, but I, I, And the I, way I understand the law, the new voting law that was written, the state can take the money, but like Muskogee County may have secured the grant. State takes it. There's no guarantee Muskogee's going to get the $200,000. And I think that's actually, is, you know, as much as I like to see local governments hold on to funds in this case because it is coming from a private entity whose motives are not necessarily clear, uh, I think that's a better policy. 
What do you, um, Secretary Raffensperger is certainly vulnerable in a Republican primary. Um, do you think there will be others that take a shot at him, or you think you know? I mean, I don't know who all's in the race right now. You may, you may. I have not paid as much attention to this yet, and I'm starting to. Do you think this will be a crowded primary? Or you think it's going to be you and him? Uh, I, I think you're going to see three or four folks uh, in this race, um, and uh, you know, time will tell us if they make it all the way to qualification. Um, Brad has attracted, unfortunately, a lot of attention. You know, when you do this job right, it's boring, and nobody knows who you are. <laughs> uh, Governor Kemp was certainly in the spotlight during this job, certainly leading up to the gubernatorial run against uh, Stacey Abrams. So, I mean, the last two Secretary of States have been pretty high profile. Would you agree with that? Well, you know, uh, when, when Brian Kemp was Secretary, he wasn't high profile. Brad Raffensperger is still Secretary, and he is high profile, and for all the wrong reasons. One of his lieutenants, uh, Gabriel Sterling, has talked about death threats and and attacks on uh, death threats and threats against people in their office, but also election workers across the state. Why are we in a climate where those types of threats are being made against elections officials? Yeah, and that and I'll I will say that that is certainly unfortunate, and I believe that that Georgians are better than that. Um, I haven't seen any of the threats. I take their word uh, for it that they happened. But I will tell you, you know, when I've gone, and I've been everywhere uh, in the state of Georgia in the last several months, uh, and as I talk to people, uh, there is a lot of frustration. Frustration, and they don't really know what to do about the frustration. Uh, people are, uh, they, they don't trust the elections going forward. It's like, well, you know, hey, the elections were messed up in 2020. Why are they going to be better in 2022 when you had the exact same Secretary of State, exact same people running that election? And people are frustrated, and I think they're rightly frustrated. That doesn't justify what you just mentioned. But I think, you know, trust in any context, whether it's a relationship or whether it's elections, it's one of those things that takes years to earn and seconds to burn. And what they have seen— Say that, say that again, it, David. That trust takes years to earn and, and seconds to burn. Do you think that the secretary burned his trust with Georgia Republicans to the ground? <laughs> I mean, he did. I mean, you, when you when you look at just even how he dealt with the leadership at the time, one of the reasons that uh, the speaker and the and I believe the governor as well and many of the the state leaders were mad at Brad when he signed that consent decree is that he never even talked to, to members of his own party as to what those, you know, what the, a wise man seeks counsel. Brad sought his own counsel, <laughs> and he made his own decision in a vacuum, and it affected everybody in the state of Georgia. But in addition to that, the, the way that it was carried out, and, and you, you, you look at, for instance, Fulton County. That's the same county that, that my city is in. It's the county I live in. Um, you know, they're, they're very active with voter registration. In fact, 103% of eligible voters are registered to vote in Georgia. And it's those type of things, those type of facts that make everyone say, this isn't right. This, this, we have to do something about this. And, and it's going to take, you know, when I ran before for Secretary of State, uh, elections was really in one category, and that was the election integrity category. How do we make the elections more secure? That's still the issue, but there's now another issue that's equally as important is how do we win back trust of the people who no longer have faith in our elections? Uh, and that's one of the things we've got to figure out how to earn back and win back. 
if you look at the last two major cycles, you had the 2018 gubernatorial state cycle. The Democrats thought the election, they didn't think it was a fair election. Now you go back to 2020, the Republicans didn't think it was a fair election. Mm-hmm. Could the bottom line be we're living in a changing state? We're a state that's getting younger. We're a state that's getting bluer. We're a state with younger professionals in your part of the state. I mean, up there where you are, you see who's moving in around you. Mm-hmm. They are younger, more educated people, right, than some of the ones in other parts of the state. Mm-hmm. There's there's no doubt. In fact, you can have um, – you can have – Sloppy election integrity. If there's no dispute, in other words, when you if you're eighty percent Republican and you're not doing your elections quite right, no one's going to really make a stir. It is when it starts to get tight that people start to pay attention. Now, what I will say that when the Democrats complained about elections, they said the Russians were stealing it. Um, that that's a platitude and a conclusion without any evidence. But when you look at and all I can speak to is Georgia. I haven't studied every state, and I haven't Absolutely. studied things beyond this state. But when you look at the state of Georgia, you know, we can look at some items that, that uh, we think there, that there was a lot of opportunity for fraud. We could say, well, you know, here it was sloppy, here it was this. Um, but I don't have for you a list that I'm going to be rolling out of here are the 11,660 fraudulent votes, although there are fraudulent votes. There are fraudulent votes in every election. That's right. That's right. If but, you vote for your fa- – if you cast a ballot for your invalid father mm-hmm. – and you submit that ballot, and he doesn't have the wherewithal to tell you what to do. That's a fraudulent vote. That's right. And and uh, I mean, you know, Secretary of State's office right now knows of seventeen hundred voters who voted absentee and then voted in person. Those votes are still in the totals according to Real Clear Politics. So that's still something that's that's not been handled. But what I'm pointing out is literally the bad decisions and incompetence of Brad Raffensperger just in what we know, what is provable by looking at nothing more uh, than the Secretary of State's page and the what we know his actual actions were. And in doing that, we had insecure elections, elections that are worth being frustrated because real things matter. You know, they say elections have consequences. Well, badly run elections have really bad consequences. No question about it. Um, uh we're at a point now. We we have well, this is going to be a forty five minute show. Um, you may set a trend. I may go take them all to forty five. Dylan, my director here, would appreciate that. Uh, is there anything else you want to say before we kind of get out of here? Is there anything else that that's on your mind, David, that you'd like to say? Yeah, I, I want to point out that um, you know, and I'm obviously I'm speaking to Republican primary voters at this point, but you know, four years ago when I was running for Secretary of State. All four candidates who were running at the time um, had the opinion that you would hope they would have, which is they wanted to make sure we had secure elections, wanted to eliminate opportunities for election fraud. When you make your decision this time, and I think Republicans would agree that we made a mistake last time. When you make your decision this time, you have to be able to look beyond the opinion, beyond the what. I mean, we've got some great plans that qualify as what in terms of what we want to see different in the Secretary of State's office. But the real key to what everyone needs to be focusing in on is not so much what, but how. Because the Secretary of State at the end of the day is no longer even a voting member on the state election board. 
It doesn't, he does not have direct authority on the 159 county boards of elections. The legislature makes the law, the courts interpret it. If you're going to make Georgia better by making our elections more secure, by making him, uh, by winning back trust and creating better confidence, it's going to have to be from a leadership platform. And, and, that, and as a mayor, that's what I bring, is the ability to cast a vision, bring people on board both inside and outside the organization to get a better result. And Columbus paid attention to the 2018 race because former state senator Josh McCoon was in that race. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some people that actually thought Josh might be the front runner. It didn't work out that way. Josh is a good guy, and uh, quite candidly, I thought it was going to be me and him in the runoff. Um, <laughs> we thought that the entire time. He's a, he was a, a, certainly a good competitor. Um, but at the last minute, like literally six weeks prior to the primary, Brad Raffensberger was in fourth place out of four. Now, what changed that is he, he self-funded to the tune of $2 million, and w- suddenly he went from literally worst to first. Uh, he and I ended up in the runoff, and you never want to be in a runoff with a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a millionaire? I am not a millionaire. Yeah. Just, a, uh, just a mayor, he, a, a yeah, former mayor. A mayor, not a millionaire. I'm going to do what I've been doing on all these, and we'll turn the tables. Um, uh, I've give you the opportunity, David, if there's a question you want to ask me, and this ought to be interesting coming. I mean, I love asking politicians questions. It's one of the best parts of my job. And it's 61 years doing, and 30 years of doing this. It's been, it really is interesting to talk to people like you. What you want to ask me? I have a great question for you. And it is, uh, and you know, as a member of the press and, um, and it's, it's a, it's a great task. It is a necessary task. It is sometimes a very unloved task, as you know. Um, but what is it that you want to see in a leader? The same thing I want to see in a father, the same thing I want to see in a husband, the same thing I want to see in my mayor, the same thing I want to see in my boss here. I want to see integrity. I want to see somebody who, doesn't shirk from responsibility. I want to see somebody that deals with issues straight up and in a forthright manner. I mean, the best advice I've ever heard was from um, Dan Amos, CEO and president of Aflac. He's been the job for more than three decades. One of Dan's philosophies is bad news doesn't get better with age. Leaders deal with bad news and with problems straight up, deal with them head on and figure it out. That's what I want to see. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, we have reached the end of another Chuck Williams show. We want to thank David Belisle for being here with us. I mean, I hope I get to have way more of these conversations and I hope you come back down this way. I know our station likes to do debates. um, So maybe we can get, the Secretary of State candidates on on the stage down the road when we get into next year because this is sprinting. I mean, the primary is May, June. May, yeah. So, I mean, you know, folks, we are inside of nine months. That's right. I mean, we're we're basically in the pregnancy stage of this (laughs) now. Um, uh, So this is going to be an interesting nine months. We appreciate uh, David stopping by. Let's go now to the Chuck Williams Show. Can be heard Tuesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. right here on WRBL.com. We appreciate it. We are now on the podcast um, uh, platforms as well, and I know a lot of people have been telling me they're picking it up on Apple and listening to it in their cars, and I'm great for that. You can see it on the 
WRBL.com, but you can hear it just on the go, and we're glad people are doing that. Now to social media, and real quick, I'm going to touch. This has been the craziest social media um, experience of my life this week. I am at Chuck Williams on Twitter. So like many people, um, I was watching football Saturday morning, and I was watching game day. And Kirk Herbstreet tweets out a thing with he and Lee Corso throwing, doing helmets and working the crowd. Well, I decided to retweet it with a comment. It's time for a new act and a new actor. Uh, talking about Coach Corso. Well, at 3.30 on Sunday morning, after he called the Auburn-Penn State game, from I'm assuming from a hotel somewhere in Pennsylvania, middle Pennsylvania, Kirk Herbstreit took exception to my tweet. He retweeted it, called me a clown, and said I was missing the point about Coach Corso. I have spent two days getting hammered on Twitter <laughs> by thousands and thousands of people. It's been a fascinating experience. So I think I'm going to stick with politics and keep my college football opinions to myself. Um, this is the Chuck Williams Show, and you have been you have been listening to it. We'll be back next week. We want to thank David Van Isle, David Bell Isle, for joining us today. Thank you so much, and come on back next time.